Welcome to Social Distance Assistance. I'm Kelly. And I'm June. So June, I've got a fact for you. I'm ready. More than a third of the country's vegetables and two-thirds of its fruits and nuts are grown just in California. Whoa! Right now, many of the people that grow those vegetables, fruits, and nuts are migrant farm workers from Mexico. And the conditions they work and live in make them really vulnerable to coronavirus. Oftentimes, they um, are traveling to work in a truck and they're all piling up together and it's really hard to do social distancing there. You know, even things, something as simple as washing your hands often can be really difficult if your hand washing station is far from your, from your station. Farm workers are essential workers that affect everybody. And those farm workers are out there from dawn to dusk working hard to put food on their tables. That's Darlene Tennis. She lives in San Jose, California. It's an area with rich agricultural roots. They used to call it the Valley of Heart's Delight because of all the orchards and farms and trees. Just a step from city to country to the rich farmland. So we have beautiful mountains and seas and oceans and lakes and, and forests. Descending from the hills to myriads of brilliant blossoms, pink and white harbingers of the fruitful crops to come. Blossom time in Santa Clara County means an annual pilgrimage for thousands of visitors who delight at festival of springtime bloom. Because we live in California, we are so accustomed to being outside all the time having festivals every weekend, outdoor concerts, farmer's markets, that just doesn't exist anymore. Darlene's roots are deep in this county and in farm worker and social justice circles. Her cousin was the cartoonist who designed strike posters during the Delano grape strike. Grape strike. In the end, farm workers won themselves better pay and benefits. As for Darlene, When coronavirus drove people into their homes, she found herself out of work. She's an event planner, large nonprofit galas, conferences, that kind of stuff. I have an extinct profession currently. And so, when Darlene realized she wouldn't be professionally planning any events for a while, she looked around for ways to help, specifically ways to help migrant farm workers. So a caravan is when you get multiple vehicles and they follow each other on a route to a destination. Darlene decided to use her planning skills and local connections to set up a caravan that would deliver supplies, food, and protective gear to farms. She posted about it on social media and got an immediate response. And I started taking reservations because, again, as an event planner, I want things very organized and want to know who's going on this trip. First, they had to pack the cars. Darlene worked out a system that kept everyone safe through social distancing. Come to a big parking lot in downtown San Jose. Park with a spot in between you and the car closest to you. Wear a mask and gloves at all times. Volunteers drop the donations in the trunk or in the back of the car. No donations allowed in the passenger seat. We asked them to bring non-perishable goods, also culturally related goods, so beans, rice, flour, and maseca for corn and flour tortillas. We asked for canned meat, spam, chicken, tuna. They asked for face masks, too. Darlene lost count at over 1,000 face masks. One woman alone gathered and donated 360 Donations kept coming and coming and coming. And then we had so many donations that I needed to get commercial trucks to bring them. They were all calling me, we'll bring a truck, we'll bring a truck. I'm going to get, <laughs> I'm going to cry. Because <laughs> it was just so beautiful. The whole caravan came together and a lot of people were giving me credit and thanking me. But to me, I felt like it was pieces of a puzzle. It was all these little pieces of puzzle that came together and made a beautiful picture. The cars drove in a big line an hour north from San Jose to Salinas, known as the salad bowl of the world, because of how many vegetable crops are grown there. The cars wove past the fields to do appreciation parades for farm workers who were out that day. And we asked people to make signs, 
um, decorate, bring flags away or something for the farm workers. And so we, there were waving back or taking their hats off their heads and waving back at us. Um, so they definitely appreciated it. And then we went to the donation center to drop off all the donations. I had some people email me and tell me what a profound experience it was for them. And they had never seen the farm workers before working in the fields. They didn't realize they were constantly hunched over, that they were covered from head to toe. This experience was able to open their eyes to what's going on. So I think that that was a really important part for people to realize, uh, to recognize, and to thank the farm workers. On this week's show, we're talking about food. Not because we're always hungry, although that is true, too. They're basically hobbits. But also because COVID-19 is disrupting American food systems. Workers on farms and in processing plants are getting sick. Crops and animals are going to waste. And grocery stores are, frankly, terrifying places for employees and customers alike. So today, we'll hear stories about helpers across the food system. From farm to plant to restaurant to store to table, we visit Virginia's Eastern Shore, the Finger Lakes in upstate New York, a farm in North Carolina, poultry plants in Arkansas, and a restaurant kitchen in Oakland, California. We'll also dig into the ethics of getting someone else to deliver your groceries for you in a time of crisis. We're going to start on the eastern shore of Virginia. At this moment, we're heading towards uh, El, El Crucero, Hispanic store. It's 5 o'clock. It's important to me and to our group to let our community know and understand that they are not alone, that they got people that are behind them, supporting them, and uh, that we are here for them. This is Pedro Agostini. He's a community organizer for Legal Aid Justice Center. Pedro lives on Chincoteague Island. With a wild pony swim. Yes, and I will take you to see them someday. Since the pandemic started, Pedro has been going out to Hispanic stores on the Eastern Shore to talk to farm workers where they shop and send money home to their families. In normal times, the Legal Aid Justice Center has community organizers throughout the state giving out information about workers' rights. But now... I've been um, listening to people saying about um, lack of uh, communications from the government towards procedures and securities and where to go and um, the resources that um, they should use in case they feel sick or against the COVID-19 pandemic. The center had a help hotline already, and they're pushing it even more during COVID. They're also still going out in person, doing outreach from a distance and getting creative. Outside one store, Pedro writes his organization's name and hotline number in paint on his car windows. Sometimes he brings a megaphone or a microphone and a speaker, or he just dies really loud. What we really want to just communicate is that folks haven't been abandoned. It doesn't matter who you are, what legal status you have. We have rights, and we're here for you. The community's here for you. We're here fighting for better conditions for farm workers who live in this packed housing, sometimes sharing bathrooms with 10 people. It's unjust, and we've got to find a way as a Commonwealth to do better. Que tengan buenas tardes y Dios los bendiga, okay? We have been struggling with the high winds and uh, and it's pretty cold. The importance of the, um, showing up on on Las Tiendas, the customers um, just seeing me and when I introduce myself, they stop. They are pleased to know that they got places that uh, will support them through the virus, uh, to COVID-19. When every, every time I mention that they are not alone, they have a big smile in their faces. 
That was Pedro Agostini and Jason Urashis translating. Legal Aid Justice Center has a ton of volunteer opportunities on their website at justiceforall.org. That's justice, the number four, all.org. Helpers like Darlene and Pedro are trying to make sure that farm workers know how to keep themselves safe. The coronavirus has led to some major disruptions in agriculture and the supply chain. And a lot of that is because workers are getting sick. By the end of April, almost 5,000 meatpacking workers across the U.S. had it. Instead of shutting plants down, an executive order is forcing plants to stay open out of fear of a potential meat shortage. So many plants have given workers masks, installed plastic dividers between workstations, and tried to do more deep cleaning. The CDC's guidelines on physical distancing are voluntary. Meat processing plants do not have to enforce them. News reports from inside plants show many workers still close together, some without masks. At a George's poultry plant in Arkansas, you can see them pushing through that plastic sheeting, masks down. No social distancing. Worker advocates say this was shot just this week. Enter Venceremos a worker-based organization in Arkansas with a mission to defend the human rights of that state's 30,000 poultry workers. This is one of Vince Ramos's founders, Magali Licoli. I've been living in the Northwest Arkansas uh, for, it's going to be probably 17 years this year, since 2004. After Magali graduated college, she worked at a community clinic just two blocks from a Tyson Foods plant. She heard workers describe injuries sustained from working on processing lines and how they didn't have access to health care. And there were people like about 40, 50 years old. And so their stories just changed me for life. And I was angry every time that I heard that because for me, I mean, it was just uh, an eye opening that the situation of my immigrant community that had to go through in order to to have a job, in order to feed their families. And so ever since 2014, I began organizing poultry workers. Every week we have our weekly meetings uh, with these two different plants. Magali says poultry workers are especially at risk for coronavirus because many of them already have respiratory issues as a result of working in these plants. Through Venceremos, Magali started online campaigns petitioning Tyson and George's to give workers paid sick leave, so they didn't have to choose between the risk of getting COVID and staying home without pay. But it's hard to convince them to organize. There's a lot of fear in speaking out. All most of these workers are very vulnerable immigrants, uh, refugees, people that often get locked up in these jobs. And it's very difficult for them to find another job because these companies are in very rural areas, white rural areas. And so for them to speak up will mean that probably they will lose their jobs and probably will be very difficult for them to find a job that provides at least some type of health care or at least they can make $12 an hour, you know. A Tyson spokesperson told Facing South, an online magazine, that the company is, quote, open to dialogue, unquote, and that workers should bring concerns to their managers or call the company's confidential helpline. But the same magazine also talked to a worker who's been with the company for about 20 years. She said she didn't feel that the managers would take her concerns seriously. Last month, Magali gathered about 200 signatures from poultry workers in Arkansas. So we are here outside the Georges plant. Uh, this week, the Georges announced that they already have COVID-19 cases. So well, we did two events. And we want and demand that all workers get tested for COVID-19. These are recordings from the end of April, when Venceremos tried to deliver their signed petitions to both Tyson and Georges. Lo más mejor posible. So right now we are going to head to that office to deliver the petitions. In Arkansas today, police called in to escort protesters off the property at this poultry plant. Workers are desperate for justice. When the cops arrived to the Tyson plant, it really felt that the 
cops were really protecting the company. Even the cop wanted to grab the petitions and ask us to leave. And he said, why don't you just leave and I will just give it to them and just contact the CEO. Hey, contact, hey, contact the CEO. Okay, guys. He went and tried to give him to the plant manager and the plant manager said, no, I don't want that. But the plant manager didn't want to accept this petition. So we are going to keep going, keep growing and keep fighting. In what we've seen and what this pandemic has shown us is how connected we are to each other, you know. And that in, if anything happens to these workers, it's going to have a huge impact in the food, you know, in the public health, in the economics. I think that they really need to rethink the way that they produce food, you know. It's just not sustainable. Ultimately, Magali's goal is to empower poultry workers to organize, no matter what it takes. I've, sometimes I feel drained, you know, because of many, sometimes my days go from very like 6 to 12 and without stopping calling workers, calling the media, calling this, calling that. I am volunteering. <laughs> I am unemployed too. This is just crucial, you know, and we built Benzeramos for the purpose of like fighting for the human rights of these workers. It's just frustrating sometimes whenever, for example, the executive order of Trump, it just drained me so much and it was too overwhelming. It was it was so much like that day. I felt like so bad. Yeah, obviously the government doesn't care for these communities. What is going to happen? I think that for some reason I am here and for some reason I have the character that I have in order to... To, to keep going and I'm I mean I'm very strong woman, you know, and, and so I think that was meant for me to handle. And ultimately Venceremos really means we will overcome. You can find Venceremos on Facebook at Venceremos Arkansas. That's V-E-N-C-E-R-E-M-O-S Arkansas. Or Twitter at Venceremos AR. There, you can also find links to donate to their efforts to organize and protect poultry workers. From big farms in California to packaging plants in Arkansas, lots of companies in the food supply chain sell their products to the same markets year after year. But now, those markets are being disrupted, either because workers are getting sick, because the Demand for food just isn't there. Schools, restaurants, hotels, they're all closed. But it's not just big agriculture and huge companies that are under stress. Small farms have had to adapt in ways they didn't expect. And the surprising thing is, many smaller operations are more resilient in the face of a big crisis. We raise corn, potatoes, string beans, Um, Cucumbers, squash, okra, peppers, onions. What else am I forgetting? That's Kendrick Ransom. He owns Golden Organic Farm in Pine Tops, North Carolina, about an hour east of Raleigh. So it really, really sparked me was I was reading the, the autobiography of Malcolm X and, you know, learning how, you know, land is the basis of all freedom. Knowing that my food's coming from 98% white farmers, I'm like, Dude, no wonder why, you know, we were experiencing 100 years of, you know, health disparities, 100 years plus. And then I started raising chickens and then it went to um, composting them with the manure. And then I started with a raised beds and then just, and then I ended up on my family's land. So it's just kind of like the universe will allow you with where you need to be. And then ever since then, I was like, there's no way I could do anything else but farm and, and grow food and, and try to teach people the best way I know how. Kendrick owns about a hundred acres, most of which has been in his family for years. The pandemic has made it hard to keep running the farm according to its normal spring schedule. Aside from dried up markets, a lot of his volunteers are staying home. Kendrick has had to do most of the work himself. I've had to manually plant a bunch myself, (laughs) you know, probably three times as much as I usually would have to. 
yeah, I mean, farming seems absolutely exhausting on like a good day. <laughs> um, <laughs> Somebody's got to do it. And, then we, and us farmers, we, we really take pride in it. Let me just ask you this. I've tried to grow okra a lot. Uh, <laughs> and I'm just wondering what I'm doing wrong. <laughs> okay. So I, I would check, I would check the pH soils and see if you need to add any, any kind of nutrients um, to make sure they're growing right. This is really important for the podcast, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Not selfish at all. (laughs) No, we all got to (laughs) learn. Teaching is a really important part of Kendrick's farming practice. When local schools were open, he led classes in school greenhouses. Now he's trying to help other farmers adopt new ways of selling their crops when their markets have shut down. Black farmers can be very stubborn. <laughs> you know, some things never change. Um, I have been reaching out to more of my the farmers that I work with who are elder. Um, like I was saying, they are 60 years and older. You know, they have a lot of crops. They're still planting, but, you know, they just don't have that market. They have some some produce that's, that they can use help selling. So I'm taking initiative to going out and helping them market their crops and their um vegetables through through the farm being able to get their produce online to where larger a large audience can access it kendrick and these older farmers can also get help from organizations like rural advancement foundation international lakita smith is a program coordinator for rafi usa's farmers of color network and we also have supported uh, farmers and markets by providing incentives to um, receive payments from uh, shoppers who would be paying by EBT. Um, So it's really supporting in a more holistic way, both getting food to consumers that need it, but also supporting the viability of the farms who've had their market channels disrupted. During the pandemic, Lakita says they're seeing great results with farmers shifting to direct market selling. That is, selling food straight to the people who will eat it. You know, as I'm seeing, you know, meat and a lot of products disappear from grocery store shelves, I feel super fortunate to be working with farmers like Kendrick and other farmers where I know a producer where I can go and get chicken and beef. And so because of that relationship, because they're right here in our community, we're getting to know or or having the opportunity to buy directly from them. We're reconnecting to community, reconnecting to food. In the last few months, the demand for CSAs has exploded. CSAs are basically subscriptions for boxes of produce or cuts of meat that come directly from farms. The CSA is something that was actually invented by a Black farmer in the late 60s and 70s, Dr. Booker T. Watley, and it was a way to increase the viability and the success of black farmers, like it enables the farmers to plan their production, anticipate demand and have like a guaranteed market. And it provided a way where people could even come out to the farm and pick their food and get it, you know, fresher and less expensive. Alongside his CSA, Kendrick is hoping to start a mobile market. If people can't get to farmers markets, or don't want to risk public transit to get to the food, he's going to bring the food to them. We're um, purchasing a trailer where we'll be able to transport foods and keep it cool, keep it refrigerated on the road. So it's just all about building, you know, and, and, and staying creative. Lakita says there's a lesson to be learned from the creative pivoting that farmers and consumers are doing. Basically, during a pandemic, get local. After the pandemic, stay local. The heroes, I think, in this are those smaller farmers who now, you know, may not be as as efficient as a big agricultural producer, but because they're more resilient, because they're smaller and more agile and can get food in more local markets who are able to get in and keep producing and get food in places when there's a disruption. So I think the one of the big lessons for us as a society at large is like to beware uh, that we're always going to have to balance 
you know, efficiency versus resilience and to really rethink how we're producing our food in the light of that. Get to know who the Black and Indigenous and farmers and farm workers are. Um, yeah. In your area and support those farms, buy from them, know them. You can find more information about Golden Organic Farm, including beautiful videos of their land and work, on Facebook. So, Kendrick runs a kind of small farm. And in his words, he's never going to go big ag. But we're going to get it. We're going to get as big as possible, you know, without, you know, crossing that line. That's because he doesn't want to see any food go to waste. He especially doesn't want to see animals euthanized and disposed of. Factory farms have lost major markets like schools and restaurants, which means their mature animals are overdue to be slaughtered, and they don't have room to accept new animals on their farms. So they either kill the old animals and dump them, or they sell the new ones as soon as they can. We don't want to see any food rotting, any more food going to waste. I'd hate to see that happen to me. You know, I'd feel really bad if I had to sell 5,000 pigs or if I had to bury 2,000 pigs, you know. So, because I hate to see animals going to waste when there's literally people starving here. Kendrick is taking in extra pigs this month, even though his farm is already running out of room. Pete Mesmer will also be adding pigs to his farm later this month. For now, I am the head cheesemaker and one of the owners at Lively Run Dairy. Lively Run is an artisan cheese producer in the Finger Lakes region of upstate New York. It's a tiny operation, mostly family run by Pete, his parents, their sales and marketing director, Katie, and Rob, Becky, and Val in the cheese room. What are you doing, Rob? I'm currently measuring out our culture blends that are going to go into our cheeses. Uh, This is going to be the chef. At the beginning of the pandemic, Lively Run just struggled to make ends meet. But pretty quickly, they started looking for ways they could help solve this surplus problem. Waste not, want not. No milk waste. No milk waste. What we've been seeing in some cases is at farms, they'll literally bring a tractor trailer load of milk and dump it into the manure lagoon like 70,000 pounds of milk. You know, it's rightfully confusing to folks because it's like, you know, why are we dumping milk when people are going hungry? It all kind of comes back to this, the weird way that our system is set up in that the big processing plants are mostly geared for bulk products, you know, like 50 pound bags of shredded mozzarella, right? So like Domino's. What's happening is that that demand is vanished because restaurants are closed and institutions like schools there are these huge plants that are operating at like peak efficiency for mass production of, you know, bulk items, but they're, they're, they're not nimble. They can't quickly pivot. And that's how we make sure that all of the milk gets to touch all of our culture and all of our calcium and all the rennet that we've added in um, so that lactic set can take in and Make some beautiful cheese overnight, and when we come back in the morning, this will be ready to scoop. Basically, we're all just kicking ideas around. We're like, man, this is, you know, this is such a waste. What can we do about it? And we're like, well, we could donate cheese to food banks. And we're like, yeah, we could, but like, you know, we don't have the funds to just buy a bunch of milk and then pay for the processing. So the idea was like, let's get a GoFundMe going. We need your help. We want to buy some of the milk that farms are dumping, make it into cheese, and donate it to food banks all over New York State. The money that you donate will be used to cover the cost of the milk and our cost of production. And then the cheese will. I think we posted it on social media on like a Thursday night. And by Saturday, we had met our initial goal of 20,000. So we, we doubled the goal to 40, which we met in like a week. And since then, I think we're up to like 50,000 in donations. And since then, we have been making cheese and donating it to food banks. What are you doing, Suzanne? Oh, I'm prepping some donations for the uh, food pantry at Press Bay Alley in Ithaca. 
So they will receive 20 packages of uh, fresh goat cheese. So this is, I think, our third week of donations, and we'll be sending out this week 769 eight-ounce packages of Chev to food banks. Last week, there were 483 one-pound packages of cheese curd. It's a lot of uh, quarantine poutine. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I mean, that's, I make a lot of cheese and cheese curds are not like my favorite thing ever because they're kind of bland, but I can get behind poutine. Yeah, it would be bad if you couldn't. (laughs) I think the interview would be over (laughs) at this point. (laughs) (laughs) So we're bringing 65 packages of cheese food pantry we're really trying to focus on underserved small food pantries in small towns here in upstate new york like a lot of these are really small rural towns right like 600 residents or less i'm very good how are you (laughs) donning your beautiful mask oh yes i am frankly there's no reason why it couldn't be done all over the country there's Cheesemakers everywhere. We are helping support farms by buying milk for a decent rate. We are helping keep small cheesemakers in operation by providing them with some work. And then all the cheese gets donated to food banks. So you kind of have three beneficiaries here. Actually, I see that extending beyond COVID because the economy is not going to snap back immediately. It's going to be a slow climb out. So there is going to be a food insecurity situation for a lot of folks, I think a lot longer than people think there is, or at least a lot longer than a lot of folks hope there will be. So by breaking it down and getting back to kind of a a smaller scale grassroots uh, approach to agriculture, it's better for the environment. Uh, It's more sustainable. It's definitely better for the animals and people who work in those systems. And it's more secure. Decentralization of the food system is going to actually, you know, protect us from this kind of thing in the long run. So 65 bags here of cheese. Very nice. Actually, there's a little more. For you and for you, for all of us. Thank you. Thank you. So much work you guys have done. Visit LivelyRun.com to find their GoFundMe and to check out their online cheese store so you can get your own curds for quarantine poutine. From the fields and the plants and the farms and the creameries to the restaurants. In Oakland, California, a celebrated chef and restaurant owner used two powerful contacts in her network to help feed people in need. Laura Tillman, a journalist based in Mexico City, brought us this story. Hi, Kelly. Hi, June. Okay, piles and piles of spring onions. So this is Dominica Rice, preparing food at Cosecha Cafe in Oakland, California. She's the owner and the head chef. Cosecha is a Mexican restaurant in downtown Oakland's Swan's Market. Dominica used to work for Alice Waters, who's kind of the godmother of the modern farm-to-table movement. And when she opened her own place, that philosophy of integrity in every ingredient really set Cosecha apart. She uses organic produce and meat and wild-caught fish, and she can talk for hours about each of her purveyors. For Dominica, owning a restaurant was never just a business. Food is never just transactional. She shut down on March 15th when California ordered all non-essential businesses to be closed. Dominica gave all her workers some vacation pay and figured, okay, this will get them through while they apply for unemployment. But it turned out that was tricky because many of her staff were in the process of applying for citizenship or changing their visa status or were living in mixed status households and they were really worried about the repercussions of applying for unemployment. And then two days after the restaurant closed, Dominica went to the local farmer's market to shop for her family, and she found one of her favorite vendors was in tears. She just harvested hundreds of dollars worth of asparagus, and she had no one to sell it to. 
the market was a ghost town. So this is like asparagus, English peas, snap peas, everything was coming in, spring onions and garlic. And usually the chefs are all fighting for the small amount that there is sometimes. And these are prime farms that we love and cherish. And um, they've set the standard for all of California for organic farming. And now they were just completely abandoned. And I was just... So between the scene at the um, farmer's market and the panic among her employees, Dominica fell into a tailspin. Hola, 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 hola. Um, It's just really... It's really hitting me now. I think I posted two very emotional things on my Instagram. All the things that they're asking us to do goes against our nature and culture for us here in Oakland. Years ago, Dominica had worked as a private chef for sisters Susan and Ann Wojcicki. Susan is the CEO of YouTube, and Ann is the CEO of the genetics company 23andMe. They saw her Instagram posts. And they reached out to me. They were like, what is happening? What is going on? We love your restaurant. We love your staff. How can we help? And at that point, I'm like, this is what's happening to the farmers. This is what's happening to my staff. A lot of myself are single moms with kids. And I'm just like, how are we going to help them? The simplest solution would be keep staff, do takeaway. But they tried it for a day, and Dominica just didn't think they were prepared. And that no-contact approach goes against the sense of community that she wanted to create when she opened Cosecha in the first place. Cosecha is all about creating meaningful relationships, and there were suddenly a lot of people in need. The cooks needed their paychecks, and the farmers needed to sell their products, and then the medical workers battling the pandemic needed to be fed. Maybe Cosecha could figure out a way to stay open and help. And that's when we started reaching out and trying to figure out what we can do to reopen. The plan was buy food from farmers directly, cook it at the restaurant, and then deliver it to hospitals and homeless encampments. Pretty straightforward, right? Well, maybe not. And I'm like, that's right. You can't just walk up to an emergency room and say, I have lunch and dinner for the doctors. Around the same time, restaurant owner Jenny Schwartz co-founded East Bay Feed ER with a similar mission. They fundraised to pay local restaurants to prepare meals for hospital workers. I absolutely had no idea what I was getting myself into. I thought that we would be doing one or two orders a day from a local restaurant, about 25 meals each. And what we're doing now is closer to 600 meals a day. And we're working with about 70 restaurants some of them doing multiple orders. Most of the orders are between 40 and 80 meals. Jenny learned about Dominica's grant and told her, listen, if you're making the food, we'll get it where it needs to go. Next, Dominica connected with Candace Elder, who founded the East Oakland Collective to feed the homeless. She took on the task of bringing Cosecha meals to some of the area's encampments. So the pandemic has actually created an increase amount of food insecurity. There are a lot of organizations, a lot of religious institutions, and even a lot of families who are sheltering in place and are no longer going out and feeding the people. The East Oakland Collective has always believed in serving high-quality food, but the offerings from Cosecha stand out. My first surprise with them was when it was salmon, you know, and I've never picked up salmon and never distributed salmon to the encampments before. Okay, we're making the bechamel for the spring pea, spring onion croquettes with panko. So really the quality and care goes a long way and it means something to us and it certainly means something to the people that we serve. Love y'all. Love me too. At first, Dominica said her staff resisted departing from their normal menu. But now the cook with experience at a Japanese restaurant is teaching the others how to make sushi rice. And when Dominica brought over a haul of beets from the market, they learned to make borscht. I feel really, really good because my my crew is really, really learning a lot. And I see a difference from week one and to now. They're excited about learning new recipes, new techniques, new and also new catering methods that they've never had to do before. We're having a lot of meetings and talking about what is 
Cosecha going to be in the future? What, it might not just be a Mexican restaurant anymore. And they're kind of excited about that. And while Dominica is still anxious about how the coming months will unfold, teamwork, that sense of community that she values most, has helped her come through her grief and her fear. And then there's also Candace and her crew. That's a relationship I want to continue forever now. Like she and her crew have been through so much and they help people who are in the street. And I'm just so grateful. Thank you for everybody. And oh, we're going to keep cooking and and trying to stay healthy. And everybody, please stay healthy. Please wear a mask. (laughs) I love you. Take care, you guys. That was Laura Tillman reporting on Oakland's Cosecha from Mexico. From fields to plants to farms to creameries to restaurants to the store. This is Joy Bass. Now, those who know me know that I am a part-time cashier at a local grocery store. And I've been at my job for two years, almost two and a half years. And I love it. I love the interaction that I get to have with customers. I love interacting with my coworkers. I just love being around people and talking to them and getting to know them and just sparking up a regular conversation. Joy's story is part of VPM's Audio Diary Project. In the full version, she talks about her job at the grocery store, calls her grandma, and emphasizes the importance of self-care for essential workers. A lot of times since this has happened, I did not want to go to work. I did not. I was so unhappy because I felt like every time I went in, I was going to have to deal with a customer complaining. I was going to have to deal with a customer who got mad because of the limits that they put on certain items. And I just, I couldn't deal with it. But on the positive side, of course, we have majority of the customers who appreciate us being on the front lines, making sure that the shelves are stocked and making sure that they're getting everything that they need and how we're taking those measures to make sure that the environment is safe and clean. In conclusion, I just feel very appreciated now. I feel like I'm very content with my work and how I know I'm doing the best that I can as an employee. Even though our family interacts with the grocery part of the food supply chain a lot more than the other parts, we weren't really sure about the best way to help essential grocery store workers, like Joy. And it's not just us. We got a voicemail asking about similar issues. Hi, this is Tyler from San Francisco. I'd like to ask about the ethics of ordering groceries to your home. Is it fair to shift the risk Onto other people, or what's the best way to go about it? Also, I've heard about efforts for some of the workers to try to improve their working conditions, and just curious what's the best way to support them or stay up on what's going on, because I can't keep track. Thanks. Oh, that's a fantastic question. That's Nicole Savita, a professor of sustainable food systems at the University of Colorado. We played Tyler's voicemail for Nicole, and then June asked a couple follow-up questions. I'll let them take it from here. How risky is it to go to the grocery store right now? So it really depends on who you are and how vulnerable you are, not only to contracting the virus that causes COVID-19, but also to having a kind of really bad version of it if you get it. And so for some people, going to the grocery store is really, really risky. They might be older, they might be immunocompromised or have some other health condition or pre-existing respiratory condition, right? But if we're generally pretty healthy and if we prepare really well and we go to the grocery store carefully, it's not necessarily a super risky thing to do or it can be done in a careful way. Is it fair to shift the risk onto other people? June, that's such a good question, right? Who should bear the risks for getting our groceries? And one of the tricky things here is that in some ways, sending just a smaller group of people who do grocery shopping and delivery into the stores 
might actually help reduce some of the risk for the people who work in those environments. So on one hand, by shifting to more of a delivery model, we might actually be protecting some people. But if we're not doing that fully, and there are some people in there who are kind of the professional shoppers, and there are lots of other people who are just like regular folks going to get their groceries, then we haven't really gotten the benefit of that. And we're potentially shifting the risk onto people who aren't making that much money to take on this risk. And that can be really unfair, especially if we don't have a special need to get our groceries delivered. I mean, like, what could the other option be? One alternative is some advocates have said, we should close down the grocery stores to the general public, and we should let all the grocery store employees take your order and do your shopping for you and then bring your stuff outside to the curb. Um, It keeps the grocery employees employed, but means that they are not interacting with the general public. Another solution that gets past the grocery stores entirely is that some of the restaurant supply distributors and, and kind of wholesale food distributors have started selling to the general public, which means that we can now buy from the people who used to supply all the restaurants. So what some people are doing is they're getting together with neighbors or friends and they're putting together an order. Um, my dad actually did this but got together with friends, put together a big order, had it delivered to his driveway. He wore gloves and a mask and he very safely parceled it all out and then had his friends come by and pick up their boxes. So we can get pretty creative. You know, in a crisis, we don't just have to use the same systems that work for every day. What kinds of things do you have to take into account when you're considering what's fair? When I think about what is fair, I often think about whether I would feel comfortable being in that position um, or whether I would feel comfortable having someone I love and care about deeply in that position. And what do we actually owe each other? And so it's not necessarily so simple as to say, well, it's not fair ever for someone else to take on a risk for you. I think if you are using that kind of service, it's fair to tip people really generously. I also think it's not just about paying people enough money, but also standing up for them and really speaking out on their behalf. Then I think it's important to understand the circumstances under which those people are working, who hires them, who pays them, who controls the conditions of their employment, and then advocate with those companies for better treatment and um, fairer work conditions, right? So if you believe that this is an important service and you want to use it, I think you should also be reaching out to companies like Instacart or or the people that run these services and demand that they treat their workers better because those companies are doing pretty well right now. And so they can do better for their employees right now. And we should be asking for that. Tyler was curious about the best way to help food workers because it's hard to keep track of what's going on and what our responsibilities should be. How do you keep track? Oh my goodness. It is so hard to keep track of what is going on right now. Where are people getting sick and which employers are protecting their workers better than others? And it's been so exhausting for the last several months. But I'm also really, I feel really lucky and really glad that I can try to do that work and try to Um, communicate some of that. And actually, a research team I work with has just put up a website today, and all week we're going to be putting more information on it that will kind of help inventory all of the risks that various groups of workers, like meat processing workers and grocery workers and farm workers, delivery workers, face. And then what we think ought to be done to protect them and to help them. What's the biggest impact COVID is going to have on our food systems? So there are some really negative, possible, scary outcomes. And then there might be some really exciting outcomes, too. The system kind of works until it's challenged. And because the system kind of works, people have said, yeah, you're talking about all those problems. But, like, I've got cheap food on my table and I feel good about that. Now we're seeing like, oh, this system is not really set up to be resilient when there are disruptions. And a big pandemic is a disruption. 
So we really need to think about how we can change our food systems to be more fair and equitable, but also more resilient. And if the people in the system are really vulnerable, the system as a whole is really vulnerable. Um, and so there are what we call prudential reasons or practical reasons to make the food system more resilient, right? Because it benefits us all. Fortunately, those changes we would have to make also make the system more just and more equitable. So those two things exist very much in a kind of like braided together way. We can't do one without doing the other. And lots of people are starting to take that conversation a lot more seriously now. So that website that Nicole is building, the one that lists ways to help essential workers, is a collaboration between two big universities. Which means that the URL is pretty long and hard to say or remember. Oh, academia. So we're going to put a link to the site in our show notes. Please check it out. It's really useful for figuring out how to be the best food system helper you can be, given your own situation. And that is our show. Social Distance Assistance is produced and engineered by... Gina Arcasel Robinson Jones, Kelly Jones, and Molly Bourne. It was created and edited by Nate Toby. Gavin Wright makes it all happen. Digital assistance from Angela Messino and the VPM News team. Steve Humble is VPM's chief content officer. Music for this week's episode was by Blue Dot Sessions. If you like what you heard, help us out. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating or a review. So. So many people made today's episode possible. Special thanks to Megan Pauly and the VPM News team for lending us Joy's audio diary. You can find the full version of Joy's story at vpm.org. Thanks also to Jason Urashis at the Legal Aid Justice Center in Richmond for connecting us with Pedro Agostini and for translating. And to Tyler Whitney at the Rural Advancement Foundation International in North Carolina for introducing us to Lakita Smith and Kendrick Ransom and Robert Alberino for sharing his staff's video of the caravan. And to all the folks that helped us answer our ethics questions, Lindsay Lerman, Chioki Jansen, Anna Malavisi, Jessica Fanzo, and Ann Barnhill. Pete Mesmer wants to shout out a special thanks to the folks who are helping Lively Run turn extra milk into cheese. Melissa Madden, Rob Rallier, Jen Smith, and Rob, Becky, and Val in the cheese room. Also, CastBox is featuring social distance assistance in their staff favorites section of the month of May. So special thanks to the folks at CastBox for listening and liking what we do. Members are a fundamental part of VPM. Member support is especially vital right now. Through member support, we're able to provide timely and fact-based information, educational resources for our kids, and informative and entertaining content to keep minds active and engaged. Be a part of what makes VPM possible. Visit vpm.org slash donate to become a member today. VPM.